morning after I graduated from Georgia Tech, I took a jet to New York and from New York to Copenhagen and a boat from Copenhagen to Landskrona and started a job at the town architect's office in Landskrona, Sweden. The third day I was there, my, my boss, Gunnar Lud, who was the town architect, took me out to an island, which would be my project site, and I noticed petroglyphs on, on boulders. He showed them to me, you know, right next to where I was designing the buildings. And uh, they were identical to the Creek sacred symbols. And I said, this can't be. And I told him that. He laughed at me. What a stupid American know about Bronze Age Sweden. But they were. They were exactly the same symbols on that rock on Dean Island, Sweden, that you'll find in North Georgia. Almost all of our petroglyphs are directly related or identical to the Bronze Age petroglyphs of Ireland and Scandinavia. Hello, I'm Pete Ferrand, and this is the Time Traveler's Suitcase. You just heard our guest for today's podcast talk about one of his earliest experiences, which opened his eyes to all sorts of similarities between people and cultures all over the earth. Petroglyphs are carvings in rock, and those are made by many, many cultures thousands of years ago, over thousands of years. Somehow, And he's not speculating how. There are many examples of identical objects of art, building, and language from people thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago. We'll hear from our guest, architect, city planner, and author Richard Thornton, talk about his research into the travels of the Mayas and others in just a moment. DNA Consultants is the sponsor of the Time Traveler's Suitcase. It's a company that has been helping people find their ancestry for more than 15 years. The founder, Donald Yates, has written a number of popular books that have now become audio titles, like Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. This is the audiobook featured in the first few episodes. His pledge, then and now, was to treat every customer's family history with the same care as his own. That idea was behind the DNA Fingerprint Plus Cherokee Ancestry Test. And now, primeval DNA. Based on the discoveries of Israeli-American geneticist Eran El-Heik, it is the world's first ancient DNA test series. Could you match both modern-day Israeli Jews and ancient Israelites? It's possible, but it's only possible at DNA Consultants. Visit us online at www.dnaconsultants.com. Check out the latest in DNA research on modern-day populations and ancient peoples like Vikings, early American Indians, Stone Age Europeans, and others. You'll be delighted and amazed. We are talking today to Richard Thornton. Richard Thornton is an architect city planner, the architect of the Indian Trail of Tears Memorial in Tulsa, is also a museum exhibit designer and an author, and the proprietor of several web pages that we will discuss in more detail. He first uh, became known to a lot of people who are television watchers who watched the first episode of America Unearthed on the History Channel. 
talking about Maya ruins in North Georgia, and it was a very well-watched, probably the most well-watched episode of this series, and he was on the show as well, provided the source material for a lot of what was on the show. I will ask him in just a second exactly what his current research project is, but we're talking about the history of the Southeast United States, particularly the creation of the Creek and Cherokee tribes. So hello, Richard Thornton. Hello there. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. And you are speaking to us from your home in Georgia, right? That's correct. I live in the Coochie Valley in northeast Georgia mountains. All right. And you have for, for some time, right? Are you from there originally? I'm just leaving this house for a year, but I'm, I'm from Georgia. I was actually born in the Okefenokee Swamp near the Florida line. And it, but I've lived in many other places in my life, including the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. All right. And you identify as a Creek Indian. That's correct. I'm also part Yuchi, but the Yuchi were associated with the Creeks. And we're going to have to stop at numerous points here to identify various terms that may not be familiar to everybody listening. And one of those is Creek Indian. Now, I understand the Creek Indian is a European word that the European settlers came up with to identify the people that they found and were not overly particularly careful about separating different ethnologies. That's true. Okay. And so the Creek are made up of, well, give us a brief description of what the Creek Indians are. Okay. The Creeks in their form when first making contact with British settlers uh formed a confederacy of the remnants of maybe 24 to 28 different provinces. These are people speaking sometimes different languages, but certain different dialects with different cultural traditions, uh, most of whom their ancestors came from various parts of Mexico or Peru or uh, the Caribbean basin and brought with them more advanced cultural skills uh, because of Something like 90 to 95 percent of the people died in the southeast due to European diseases and slave raids. Uh, those remnants came together in response to the, the arrival of Europeans uh, and formed the Confederacy. Uh, the actual name translate of uh, the Confederacy translation is "People of One Fire." The Creek label began because the being agriculturalists and town dwellers. Their towns were located on rivers and creeks, and at that time, the word creek did not mean what it means today in English. It was an estuary or a, a slow-moving river, and so when you say creek in it, that means they lived on larger bodies of water or estuaries coming in from the ocean, not, not on a small stream. But most of the towns were on rivers that were deep enough to use uh, large freight canoes up to 90 feet long that transport goods up and down the rivers. All right, that's not none of that is really a surprise, and, and that part goes along with conventional history, right, so far? Yes, sir. You have been very controversial in various areas because of what you've been talking about, and this has to do with different people's, I guess, opinions uh, of what the history of these people are and who, who makes up these various groups. What is the focus of what you are doing today? It sounds like what you're doing today, you're not doing, uh, or at least you're not writing about, building houses and whatever architects normally do, building buildings and so forth. You're researching the various aspects of where the people in the southeastern United States come from, right? 
Yes, except we're, we're actually we're focused on on one smaller board section of that, I guess you'd say. For the past three years, uh, I and our volunteers have been searching out the locations of archaeological sites visited by archaeologists in the mid and late 18, 1939 with Robert Washam. They were talking about hundreds or thousands of archaeological sites in Georgia and western North Carolina and eastern Alabama that were described given archaeological site numbers, uh, sometimes photographed or drawn, and then have been lost. And in particular, I'm focusing on the area where I found those first ruins. We now have found 16 terrace complexes in North Georgia, like Track Rock, but also about just recently uncovered much older civilizations here and enormous ruins. Going back to the, the initial travels of people like Cyrus Thomas in the 1880s, who was chief archaeologist for the Smithsonian Institute. He was particularly active in the very section of Georgia I live in, Haversham County, and virtually all of his sites have been lost because they were just forgotten by the current generation of archaeologists. What I'm doing is we identify the site, photographic measure with modern technology, such as laser and LIDAR and um, several other te electronic techniques, produce drawings, sometimes three-dimensional drawings of these sites, pinpoint them on a map so they won't be lost again. I do not do any digging. I'm not an archaeologist. I don't have the patience for it. Throughout my career, I've worked with archaeologists, but I just don't have the patience to sit there and dig all day in the same spot. So I just document. I, I do the very same thing I would do with a historic building. It, it document what's there in every little detail. Okay, and the kind of things that you're finding, you're saying terrace properties, you're mm -hmm. finding mounds. Let's stop for a second with, with the mounds. What Do you have an idea of what the mounds were used for? Well, there are different types of mounds, and we're talking about a period over a thousand years. The, the oldest example of architecture in North America, even older than anything in Mexico, is in Savannah, Georgia. The Bilbo Mound, which has been radiocarbon dated to 3,545 B.C., so we're not talking about one culture. We're talking about a parade of cultures through thousands of years who built mounds for various reasons. The current mounds we find are, are mainly the platforms of public building, the same purpose they had among the cultures in Mexico, in which they would erect uh, mounds of earth and rock of various shapes and then put a temple on top. But we also have come into some large burial mounds where there, it's basically cemeteries where you pile one dirt on top of the grave and pretty soon you have a mound because of years and years and years of piling and burying bodies. One of the conclusions you're, you're making is that there's a lot of commonality between people all over the Americas, right? And in Georgia yes and, and Alabama no. and so forth. <laughs> There's commonality here with the peoples of Mesoamerica and certain parts of northern South America. But again, uh, the culture, even as I told you, the DNA of the people in this area of the southeast is quite different than the rest of North America. When when I I took a DNA test of all members of my family, it comes back Mesoamerican DNA and Peruvian DNA does not say Native American because, as I said, our ancestors came from farther south. All right, define Mesoamerica for us, please. Mesoamerica generally applies to Mexico and the northern part of Central America. 
the Peruvian DNA we carry, the Panoans from eastern Peru who lived on the eastern foothills of the Andes in an area of very similar appearance to North Georgia. And these are native Peruvians, as far as we can tell, who've probably been there for many, many thousands of years, right? The Native American part is, but the Yuchi is not. Uh, the, most people don't know this, but the Yuchi have always said they came across the Atlantic. And the Yuchi part of our DNA uh, will show up as being Sami from Lapland, uh, Finnish, Basque, pre-Gaelic Irish, and sometimes some Iberian and Scandinavian mixed in. Also, our family has Polynesian DNA. That's the Siuchi. They were the descendants of people who uh, were seafaring, called the Shusami. And they they said they came first to the mouth of the Savannah River and then worked their way upstream. When they came here, uh, there was no one living in the southeast, but they could see ancient mounds where people had lived here before them. But they became kind of the base stock for many of the tribes in the southeast. And over time, of course, mixing with true Native Americans, they basically looked like, to, probably to most people, they looked like Indians. But really, when you look at their DNA, it tells you they're from northwestern Europe. And uh, that's it's a very complex situation culturally and genetically here because of that. And so it sounds like it's very hard to make up concrete hypothesis of who moved where because of all this intermediate. Absolutely, and that's much of what we're doing. I, I tell people we have no theories. Uh, it's called the People of One Fire. It's going to call our organization. And the research is being sponsored by the Appalachia Foundation, but that's more of a professional end. But basically, we have no theories. And I get upset when people say, well, you might have a theory about it. I have no theories. I honestly don't. If I would have, I probably wouldn't have gotten as far as I did. All we're doing is following the evidence wherever it leads us. And it's, I've had one surprise after another, uh, you know, things I would never expected or theorized because I had no knowledge of them. And one, then you find concrete proof of something and it becomes a new fact, not a theory. We are listening to Richard Thornton who has been documenting ancient discoveries involving Mayans and others who lived and worked in North Georgia, among other groups. You have a missing piece of how did this happen in oh, all absolutely. of these things. Oh, absolutely. As much I don't know, and I don't pretend to tell. I, I tell people, this is what I know today. It might change tomorrow. <laughs> well, yeah, and you find evidence of some kind of similarity in DNA and or language from people in Lapland versus, you know, people in Lapland matching up with people in Alabama, for instance. I don't know if this is specifically something you found, but if you do that, you then have the issue of, okay, well, how did this happen? And there's really no way to tell, and I don't know if there ever will be. I think we'll eventually get there. In fact, I was just, just before we, we got online, I received an email from a professor up in Michigan who said he had found a book, and I believe it's, in Norwegian or Swedish that gives a detailed information on the Shusami or Sisami that matches everything we're finding. That They've studied them up there, and they have the same combination of DNA that was shown up with Yuchi here. I kind of knew that from the very beginning. Uh, the morning after I graduated from Georgia Tech, I took a jet to New York and from New York to Copenhagen and a boat from Copenhagen to Lundskuna, 
and started a job at the town architect's office in Lanskrona, Sweden. Wow. Instantly, instantly, everybody thought I was Sami. Oh. Everywhere I went in, in Scandinavia, people thought I was Sami. When I was in Lapland, 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle, the Sami thought I was a Sami. Huh. Okay. And I should have <laughs> known, you know. And, and then he actually, Lanskrona was the center of the Scandinavian Bronze Age civilization. And the third day I was there, my, my boss, Gunnar Lud, who was the town architect, took me out to an island, which was be my project site, and I noticed petroglyphs on, on boulders. He showed them to me, you know, right next to where I was designing the buildings. And uh, they were identical to the Creek sacred symbols. And I said, this can't be. And I told him that. He laughed at me, you know. <laughs> what a stupid American know about Bronze Age Sweden. But they were. They were exactly the same symbols on that rock on Bean Island, Sweden, that you'll find in North Georgia. Almost all of our petroglyphs are directly related or identical to the Bronze Age petroglyphs of Ireland and Scandinavia, and that's without the, exception. And, and that is part of the education that you're trying to show that has been ignored by the bulk of everybody, right? Yes. Yeah. You can't argue with petroglyphs. They're there. They've been there for thousands of years. It's not, it's not say, well, I don't believe it. No, it's exactly the same symbol means the same. Not only that, there are some words that mean the same. Even after all these years, there are words uh, mm. that have the same meaning in, in archaic Swedish or modern Swedish and Irish as they do in some of the languages in the lower southeast. Unbelievable. The unknown aspect is how these people traveled and why. Right. Uh, I think we know why, because the Georgia mountains have the purest gold in the world, and then originally we also had large deposits of native copper on the surface, like nuggets, and we also had a, a natural form of brass. Hmm. And there was no copper ore available in Scandinavia. And the exact time that they were wandering around the world looking for copper so they could make bronze was when we had these things showing up in the southeast. So I think they came here as miners. And now, if you recall, the America on Earth, the University of Minnesota, proved that the Maya blue that was applied to the temples and murals of the Mayas, the, the key ingredient, came from Georgia. And when we talk about Maya blue, we're talking about a paint additive that yes. would keep the paint... It reacts with lime and forms something that's rock hard and lasts for centuries. Right, and so the paint doesn't fade, and so they would be mm -hmm. interested in... Not the full guy. But the, and, the, yeah. and also, they had no mica in the Maya culture. Uh, and they used vast quantities of mica, much more than they did Maya blue. And so this would be the nearest large source of micas up in where I live, right here. The same place where the gold was, where the mica was. Hmm. So that probably would have been a much more valuable commodity than the ingredient Maya Blue, and considering the amount of vast quantity of mica used in architecture by the Mayas. It was used as a added to their lime plaster to make it harden and, and reinforce it. Basically used it like fiberglass. Okay, they weren't using it as windows or that kind of thing. No, as, well, as we I have think later. they have found sheets of mica down there that are like paving floors or for things like that, but primarily it was the the powdery type of mica that looks like really looks like gold and vast quantities of it are, are used on their buildings and they use it for cosmetics uh, a wide variety of uses and in fact the creek temples also were coated with mica to protect the, uh, the clay plaster so we had the same 
architectural tradition here of using mica in architecture. Well, how did they know there was mica and or bronze and or copper or gold or whatever uh, in I this particular know. place? This is the thing is that you just don't go and embark on a six or 8,000 mile trip because you have a feeling that there's mica or some other valuable product there. And, and, I know, and, but and, they and, did, obviously. Yeah. And, and see, there was, there was no Maya blue available, or no Atlantis available to the uh, the civilization earlier civilization at Teotihuacan, and so they probably were the ones that found the Atlantis guide in Georgia back then. That's two twenty five hundred years ago. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but obviously there were back then there were people in ocean going ships that were wandered around the world. You know, exploring and looking for wealth and mining and commodities. I mean, it's the only way you can explain it. That's all I know now. Uh, what can you say? I mean, like, I carry Maya DNA, so how did it get here? Obviously, Mayas came here. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that, that part, people travel. People travel, but it's easy to understand people travel from Mexico or Central America up north and people from... America, what is now America, travels south, and they're looking for cropland, or they're looking for fish, or they're looking for some some basic stuff. But it's a major jump mentally to think that they're actually looking to discover compounds in the ground that they did not know of where they live now. Obviously, they did. And yeah. there were, there's talk and get more information from European anthropologists and historians and do here that tend to be more open-minded in Europe. But what we hear is the discovery of a period of time, perhaps during the early Bronze Age or the Copper Age, in which mankind just sailed all over the world. And, you know, had, like the Polynesians just spreading across the Pacific. Um, there's, just a, there's a certain mentality among certain groups of peoples around the world that that enabled them to travel long distances and, and see what was on the other side of the horizon. Yeah, people don't believe, I think. It's, it is hard to believe to look looking at primitive people. Well, they weren't the, clearly they weren't that primitive. Mm. And they were able to sail possibly more efficiently than the more recent Europeans that we are familiar with in moving stuff around with whatever kind of ships they had. I should make it clear, though, that I am not trying to prove anything. And, and yeah. that's... I get upset when people who don't know me and know nothing about me, the first text, the thing that they think I'm thinking like then I have a religious cause or beliefs or theories that I'm trying to prove. I have none. And I have my hands full right now with just all these major town sites just documenting them without getting into trying to prove who did what and when. And uh, the first step is just to recognize the fact they're here. Right, and I mean, we're, we're not going to answer any questions unless we first ask the questions. Well, yeah, and we need the evidence. We need physical evidence, and I guess that's what you're doing. And when you said before these sites were lost, that means that people would have found them, written stuff up, and then whatever they wrote up somehow disappeared, right? No, it just no one looked at it. Oh, no one looked at it at all. I mean, Cyrus Thomas is a very famous archaeologist, and he published all his studies in a bulletin of the... the National Geographic Society and the Smithsonian and, and the Bureau of Ethnology. Everything is published. It's just no one looked at it. Hmm. Uh, the same thing with Robert Washup, who spent a year here in the Nakuchi Valley in 1939. Uh, 
his book was finally published in 1966, and very few people read it. And so even the even the bureaucrats in Georgia and the archaeologists in Georgia generally ignored his book, and many sites were just forgotten or even destroyed because no one ever bothered to go to the places where Robert Walsh had been. When we first uh, talked a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I was surprised that as many of these sites are still around because with all the development that we see everywhere, I would think it's quite likely that a lot of things get destroyed because people either don't know or don't care. That is the case for Metro Atlanta, although some very large sites have been preserved. Uh, Atlanta actually was always a place where trails converged and attracted Native Americans and Closer into the center of Atlanta is pretty much destroyed, but you get away from the center of Atlanta, and, and county governments and city governments have preserved some major town sites and kept them as parks. Okay. And these would be, again, mounds, terraces. What, what other kind of things are you, are you finding around these uh, southeastern states? Uh, up here, it's what you see more is stone structures, the ruins of stone structures, and you know, the walls for temples and walls supporting uh, agricultural terraces, uh, stone-covered mounds, conventional Indian mounds, uh, ceremonial structures. Many of the, the mountaintops in Atlanta itself had observatories on them. They were called stone rings or stone circles. They had poles erected. They would use them like observatories to, to monitor the movement of the stars and the sun. As with Stonehenge, it, it, basically? It, it's really a very different culture than what the Hollywood image of American <laughs> Indians are about, you know, it's just not, yeah. you, you can't even think in terms, the people wore woven clothes, you know, they had metal tools, it's, it's, it's a different type of culture than the Hollywood image of American Indians. No, what I'm thinking of is a Stonehenge type uh, structure. Uh, more sophisticated than that. Really? Oh, yeah. And I, I and again, I, one has to get into total supposition here, but they were interested in observatories to predict weather, maybe, or predict the future? Um, we think, again, this is where the same thing, like, why did they cross the ocean to get here to mine gold? Uh, you know, yeah. you can't read their minds, but uh, we think the major impetus for the observatories was to know when to plant seeds and when to harvest, ah. uh, that sort of thing, we think. I mean, definitely... The most common features you see in these observatories, and even in the architecture itself, is an orientation so they can calculate the equinox and the solstices, so they can calibrate their calendar. The Creek calendar had 365 days, mm. and then they had a leap period uh, to compensate. The same thing as a leap day, but it lasted longer. The, the difference between 360 days and, and the five or five plus days of the leap were made into an annual. New Year's Festival, they had, and they had to calculate how long to make it in order to keep their calendar accurate. Very interesting, and again, everything you hear about and see indicates that these are highly sophisticated people that are not a bunch of primitives. No, no, they're not. Uh, this is what Governor Oglethorpe, who was the founder of Georgia Colony in Savannah, said he sent a letter immediately back to the King of England and he said that he has made acquaintance with the Creek Indians. Uh, they have their intelligence is equal greater than Englishmen, and it's obvious they are descended from an ancient civilization. It is my recommendation they be treated in all, equals in all matters. Yeah, and you see and how far he got with that idea. He did. He did. 
Oh, yeah, we had very good relations between the creeks. That's why there's so many mixed bloods like me running around. They, in fact, both the, the creek leaders and the English uh, encouraged intermarriage so there would be uh, harmony oh, between wow. the people. Uh, how, uh, what evidence did you find of that? How would, how would evidence show up? Did you see uh, documents? Yeah, it's publicly stated policies. Really? Yeah. And how come that is so, at such variance with the way Indians were treated elsewhere? Uh, well, is I think it's a combination of factors. First of all, there was not that much difference. I mean, the Creeks lived in towns where farmers and the people coming from Ireland, Scotland, and rural England were, you know, lived in villages and towns where farmers. So yeah. culturally, was, the Creeks were had a monotheistic religion. Um, not that different from Judaism and, and very receptive to Christianity. Um, you know, it's just culturally not that different. The What happened was, was that after the United States came about, the leaders became very greedy because of the cotton thing, and they started really royally screwing the creeks in order to get their land to establish uh, cotton plantations with slaves. And that was the main reason the creeks were, most of them were kicked out and sent to Oklahoma. The people wanted their free land in order to, to get rich off of having slaves and raising cotton. And the Indians were in the way, basically. Well, at least the creeks were, and then some of the Cherokees. The reason I know this for a fact, what I'm telling is not a supposition. I was a, a supporting researcher for Roger Kennedy, former director of the National Park Service and of the uh, National Museum of American History when he wrote his book on on Greek revival architecture. And so I was doing a, helping with research and we found proof that almost all the land grabs by the whites during the early 1800s was directly related in the South, of course, was directly related to the greed to establish plantations. There's not a conflict between these peoples because there was not a whole lot of difference in the lifestyle of a creek farmer and a white farmer. And they were often related by marriage. But Roger found where that Andrew Jackson actually committed, commissioned four agronomists to draw maps of where the best lands for cotton cultivation would be in Alabama and Georgia and Florida. And then he stole that land. Mm. <laughs> He, he, the map of where he, he stole the land is exactly equivalent to where they used to tell cotton would grow. And they were right, I guess. I mean, they were yeah. right, they're correct, they're not, not right ethically or morally, but they were right in that these were good lands for cotton and, growing. And the reason they, they kicked their Cherokees out is it's a myth about the gold thing. The, the Cherokees, very few, if any, ethnic Cherokees lived in the part of Georgia where gold was. They, they'd been, for a short period of time, they'd been given ownership of the land, it was taken from the creeks, but what they did do that got them in trouble is they started establishing plantations in northwest Georgia, which is a lower elevation. It has mountains, but the, the, the valleys are much lower, and so it's suitable for growing cotton, and there really wasn't much push to kicking the Cherokees out of the southeast until the, these same people discovered that, hey, we can grow cotton there too, and most of the Cherokees were concentrated in these river valleys. In northwest Georgia, exactly where they could establish cotton plantations. And so they were booted out. Okay, well, I guess this kind of parallels. This sounds like it was more organized, but uh, Indians around the entire country, uh, they would come up with some kind of excuse to move them off their land, right? It's not it just the uh, cotton thing was just the excuse that made sense over there. 
it's much more of the good old boy, don't trust the Southern lawyer thing in our case, though. <laughs> the Creek chief, William McIntosh, who signed the treaty giving away most of the Georgia Creek's lands, was the first cousin of the governor of Georgia who was signing that same treaty for the whites. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. As I said, it's, it's more like more modern politics, what was going on, because you're not dealing with savages versus uh, civilized people. You're talking about two civilized people, but the one to the east has more guns and more people by then. And um, it was a lot of dirty dealing and crooked things going on, but mainly that type of thing rather than what went on in the west where it was brute power. Right, and there is a history of societies everywhere of you objectify the other party, the enemy, if you will, and make them out to be less than human. Mm. Heathens or whatever. Well, they put out a myth elsewhere that, you know, the savage and the people living in other parts of the United States probably, well, they're Indians, they must be savages. Well, no, that was not the case. In fact, they were, as I said, the two people signed the treaty were both closely related, which pretty much was the situation everywhere. Um, there was no real problems that could have been solved because so, much, so many of the people were interrelated. We've been listening to Richard Thornton talk about his work documenting and trying to understand some of the ancient peoples who traveled way more than most people are aware of or has been written up in most popular histories. We'll hear more from him in our next podcast. You can find all of Donald Yates's and DNA Consultants' books on Amazon.com as well as Audible.com, from Ancestors and Enemies to Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. Here are some of the voices from those audiobooks. Nearly 2,000 years ago, 200 BCE, great revolutions happened in the north of Asia. The Oguzian Empire was severed, and a swarm of barbarous nations emigrating from Tatari, Mongolia, and Siberia spread desolation from Europe to America. In Europe, they nearly destroyed the powerful Roman Empire, and in North America they subverted many civilized states. When we lived beyond the Great Waters, there were twelve clans belonging to the Cherokee tribe. And back in the old country in which we lived, the country was subject to great floods. So in the course of time we held a council and decided to build a storehouse reaching to heaven. The Cherokees said that when the house was built and the floods came, the tribe would just leave the earth and go to heaven. You will never find out the truth about my mother's people, sneered Elzina when we met with her in her Victorian cottage in Huntsville. Elzina was Teresa's aunt, my father-in-law's older sister. Teresa and I had both recently discovered we were Melungeon, or at least of Melungeon descent. As an American Indian recently relocated to Santa Fe, I regarded an outing to Chaco Canyon as a pilgrimage of obligation. So on a bright, sunny Saturday morning in October, three of us set forth after mistakenly selecting the shortest route on the map. The Decalogue Stone outside Los Lunas, New Mexico, is a sight seen by few people. Its very location is something of a state secret. You need a $25 access permit from the public land office to go to it. Only officials are very clear. They cannot and will not give you directions. 
I hope you'll join us for the next Time Traveler Suitcase, as there's lots more to explore in the world of DNA. Listen to us on iTunes and from the link at dnaconsultants.com. We'd like to hear your comments. Please direct them to the webpage. The Time Traveler Suitcase is brought to you by DNA Consultants. Check out the webpage at dnaconsultants.com. The program is created by Donald Yates and Pete Ferrand, and I'm host and producer Pete Ferrand. Thanks for listening. Thank you.